Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Dr. Zino Leone, who is a lecturer and teaching fellow at the Defense Studies Department of King's College London. His research focuses on world order and hegemonic shifts with a special interest in the hegemonic competition between U.S. and China. His latest book, recently published, is American Grand Strategy from Obama to Trump, Imperialism after Bush and China's Hegemonic Challenge. Uh, grazie for joining the podcast. Zino, how are things in London? Jorge, thank you very much. Um, all, all good here. All good. And th there's a lot happening uh, in London and in the rest of the world. So keeps us very busy. Yes, indeed. Uh, all right. So maybe we can start um, with with your book. And, and we were discussing, you can give us just a bit of your theoretical framework. You write that the interstate geopolitical competition between the U.S. and China has Taking the shape of inter-imperial rivalry, a nuance which you say is neglected by non-Marxists, though globalization has integrated our economies, states continue to act on geopolitical logic. You talk about hegemony, empire, the American empire, Marxist imperial theory. So before we get into the U.S.-China rivalry, perhaps tell us, you know, what is most important for you when thinking about empire today? Uh, absolutely. So uh, my... Uh, in my book, basically, as you alluded to, I tried to challenge this idea that uh, the study of empire and imperialism, especially through a Marxist uh, point of view, uh, it couldn't it, it couldn't focus on you know the military, the geostrategic aspects of uh, foreign policy. Uh, Neo Gramscian and other you know others in the, the family of, of Marxists for pretty obvious. Uh, reasons tend to focus on uh, the economic aspect of uh, of international politics. Uh, they don't even think in terms of international politics. They think in terms of international political uh, economy, which is great. Uh, but um, I try to uh, to challenge them uh, by trying to integrate in in the theory of empire and imperialism, especially from a left wing perspective. The idea that we can also talk about uh, military rivalry, geopolitical rivalries, uh, clashes between empire, inter-imperial rivalries. And I decided to do that with a uh, highly neglected uh, theory of imperialism, certainly a theory of imperialism that has been neglected in the last few decades. Perhaps it was more popular uh, you know, in the aftermath of World War I. And this is Lenin theory of imperialism. I always have to uh, clarify that, at least in that pamphlet, in imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, uh, Lenin um, defined imperialism not not as you know, not as one as a great power subjugating or occupying, invading another country, but more as a weaker country in particular, but more as interstate rivalry. So that's how Lenin defines imperialism in that uh, short book, in that uh, pamphlet. And there are two very important pillars in that theory, uh, which are very relevant in, in the competition between the US and China. One is, um, the, the first one is the fact that uh, the international environment is uh, highly competitive. Global markets are very competitive. Therefore, different multinational corporations they try to collaborate, to cooperate with their, you know, with their national government, where they are originally based, in order to um, you know, have political support to unlock opportunities in the international system. That's very crucial. We shouldn't believe the myth that uh, the myth of, of, of free market, at least not all the time. Sometimes, very often, these companies, big companies, big businesses, cooperate with their governments and compete in the international arena. For example, uh, take, the exa take, take France and the fact that it got very upset because it was left out of, of AUKUS. There was a specific case of the, the French government trying to push hard to, to promote its strategic industries. That's why they, they were very upset. So that's what we're talking about. And this is one pillar of Lenin's theory of imperialism. The other pillar is about the fact that great powers rise and fall, and, and they rise and fall because uh, uh, wealth 
circulate, moves around, and capital always uh, live. Uh, well, they, they go from one, one country to another to another in search of economic opportunities, in search of better better deals or better conditions for you know for lucrative uh, businesses. And this is what's behind the fact that it, it, this is what's behind globalization and the rise and fall of the, the decline of the US and the rise of China. And so le- with these two pillars, Lenin tries to explain that, you know, this is why uh, countries um, go to war, essentially, or go to war or compete in the, in the international arena in order to recreate those conditions of profitability, in order to promote their, 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 their company, their strategic uh, companies, and and I think this is a good good picture, good way of framing what is going on between the U.S. and China. And maybe then again, before moving ahead, taking a look at uh, the state of the U.S. today. Uh, in your book, you've said that you don't think uh, American grand strategy was ever really isolationist; that it oscillated between full and selective engagement in international affairs. But now the unipolar moment is over and supposedly it will be more difficult for the U.S. to engage the world. You say that the world order is transitioning toward an uncertain structure, but with features that are unfavorable to the United States compared to the immediate post-Cold War era. Um, You know, what comes next for uh, America as a declining superpower we see internally? There are a lot of cultural, sociocultural, political divisions uh, economically. It's not doing well. Uh, and then we, we've seen the retreat from Afghanistan and the eyes of the world. America seems weak now and other countries are becoming more confident uh, and aggressive. Russia, China, Iran and so on. So what are your thoughts uh, on that? Yeah, I, I'd like to take a step back first, um, because, as you say, yes, uh, the, the unipolar moment, the liberal international order is in a crisis. But actually, one of the points I always try to make very, very vocally uh, is also in the book on American grand strategy from Obama to Trump, is that the liberal international order since the end of World War II has worked fairly well, fairly conveniently uh, for the United States. It was beneficial to the United States. Uh, why? Because uh, the United States have a very competitive, advanced uh, you know, technological uh, economy. Uh, and so they had, you know, an interest in uh, exporting, in opening up the world economy. They had an interest in free market and inter- international rule of law because it was convenient to their very competitive uh, multinational corporations. Um, there is a, and this, this is the story of the liberal international order until more or less Trump, if you want, but there is a there is a flow, there is a limit in the strategy. You cannot have a global order. You cannot implement, promote globalization if you don't have uh, other countries, other other economies acting as locomotives of this world of this global order. To to put it in a simple way, who does who do U.S. companies sell to if there's nobody buying? Essentially, that that's the point, and so. In order to achieve that, the U.S., we have seen it many times in history, they had to encourage other countries, other great powers to, to rise, to develop, to open up, to become you know, part of the, of the family of the liberal international order. And this is where all the problems with China uh, begin, began. And this is when you know, China started to develop, started to somehow imitate the United States in a very efficient way, and it has become a competitor of the US nowadays. And we'll talk about that uh, later on. But so what's going on with the liberal international order now? Uh, The problem is that it doesn't work efficiently as it used to work. It doesn't benefit anymore the US as it used to. Uh, There are too many competitors, especially from an economic point of view. And the US is unable, and we see this in the crisis of the World Trade Organization, uh, is unable at uh, enforcing, um, you know, free market rule of law. We see this, in, you know, in the many failed negotiations within the WTO, and this somehow explains the Obama, the Obama administration, but above all, the, the, the you know the anger of the Trump administration because it's the Trump administration that realized that 
the liberal international order wasn't any more uh, convenient as it used to be in, uh, uh, for the United States. And so, yes, we, are entering, we have been entering a, a, you know, a phase of uh, transition. I think many agree that we last probably uh, about 20 years, perhaps, who knows? Um, and definitely it's taking us towards a post-American order. I think we are already there. Um, it's difficult to say whether this will be a multipolar order, whether it will be a bipolar order, so a US-China thing. Um, some people talk about a polarity, so no, no, no real hegemon, and they say this is concerning. Others talk about a multiplex order, so the, the overlap of different, different features, authoritarian and uh, liberal features in, in the international order. Certainly, it's, it's, you know, it's an order which will have less stability compared to the unipolar moment of, of the 90s where there was an hegemon who could uh, impose its, its will over, over the others uh, in the international system. So you, you touched on it, and it was my next question. Anyways, you write about China as a crucial partner and strategic enemy. Yeah. You, you said that China initially was you know, benefiting from the help of the West, that America helped China become a superpower, but China decided to strategically remain sovereign and independent, opening up economically, but never politically, as some other countries countries have done and perhaps in that way those some of those countries became you know vassals uh, of of the US but China is has resisted that and you've said that both Washington and Beijing want to be global capitalist players yet they want to do so based on rules that help them further their national interests so what are your thoughts on the US China economic and as well as this political relationship and you know the the idea of decoupling and and because i think this is part of the roots of of the tensions that we're that we're getting now yeah, yeah so uh, the, the i i make this argument that the us and china are best friends and worst enemies at the same time so especially china is the us best friend in the sense that um it, you know, it has been uh, the locomotive, as I said, of that global economy that was so crucial for, for the U.S. economy, ultimately. But it's also, the China has, been, has become also the U.S. worst enemy uh, for different reasons. First of all, because it has uh, become very successful, uh, especially it is becoming successful in some uh, highly sensitive, highly uh, strategic areas of technologies and, and industries. Um, and it has, it has achieved this success, uh, let's say in quotation marks, cheating on the, the US-sponsored um, you know, international rule of law. Um, it, in a way, it's, it's, um, it, it's, a bit, it's a bit unfair to say cheating in a way, but here we need to understand that there are two troops that we struggle to reconcile. On the one hand, China is saying, we want to. We don't want to respect those rules because um, uh, they were, you know, established by the United States. They are convenient for the United States. We want to challenge them. Absolutely true. So this is one side of of the coin, and this is why China has this approach, selective approach to globalization. It won't, It only wants to open up where it is convenient, where it's strong where it's not strong, where it's not ready to compete, it keeps to protect, protecting its uh, industries. On the other hand, the West, the US, has always uh, communicated to China somehow that uh, they, they expected China to, to democratize, to liberalize, uh, and this hasn't happened. And so, I mean, these are two fair, uh, legitimate claims on both sides. Why we cannot reconcile the two? Because ultimately, the, the liberal international order is a strange beast. We have the international system of states on the one end, which overlaps with a, an, a, a spatial uh, transnational network of flows, of economic flows. And there are, there are a lot of tensions. It's difficult, it's, all, it's impossible to reconcile uh, the state interest with economic interest sometimes. It's not always possible. And this is also why China has become such a great dilemma. However, please just allow me to, to add one, one final thought because you asked me about 
um, the evolution of, of this relationship between the US and China. Um, the US, um, at, at different junctions, the US had the opportunity to, you know, to, the US made, made many mistakes when it comes to China because it was always driven by this idea of opening up, by this idea of globalizing. And we find this in, in the Clinton administration. Um, his um, Bill Clinton, national security advisor, Anthony Lake said, after the Cold War, we need to give up containment, we need to focus on enlargement. Um, so the, and there are many examples like this one in, in the history of US-China relations. And the US has always had this belief that China was democratizing, but China has never said that. Uh, the four objectives of, of Deng Xiaoping's were all about you know, making China a great country, a developed country. They never mentioned democracy. And you can also see that um, in the resolution that the Chinese Communist Party prepared about uh, Mao, the Cultural Revolution was condemned but the legacy, the fact that China had inherited this Chinese Communist Party, which could control the strategic levers of power, the strategic levers of society, that was never condemned. That was actually acknowledged as the greatest legacy of Mao. And, the, and this, this upsets the United States very much because the US would like China to privatize its economy. Because if China was to privatize its economy, it, its economy would be more vulnerable to, to, to Western companies, right? Which nowadays continues to be uh, stronger in international markets. And this is a weakness of, of China. Yeah, so we talked a, a little bit about kind of the strength and weakness of, of the US. The US, is, uh, US empire is declining now, kind of to take a quick look at China. In a recent talk you gave um, online, I'll, I'll include the link in the description, you highlighted some fascinating information, how the US you know, wasn't paying attention and how China's GDP grew 12 times that of the U.S. and you know China's military spending grew 16 times that uh, of the U.S. And I think by if I think already now China's navy surpassed in, in quantities has surpassed uh, America. So how weak or strong do you view China today, politically, economically, or in, in total? Uh, okay, so first of all, on the overtake uh, or, or on the rise of China. So at the end of the Cold War when the US decides to give up containment and uh, focus on enlargement, on globalization, the, the, you know, the mantra was uh, Francis Fukuyama's end of history. This idea of end of history, we find it in, it's a general idea, but we find it in different areas. In terms of strategic studies, it was translated as, with this expression, the strategic pose. So there was this idea that the enemies of the West had been defeated. And so we could focus on different things, uh, on enjoying life, perhaps. Uh, Edward Lutwak, the strategist, said, uh, we don't worry about international security anymore. Let's focus on, on the geoeconomy of, of you know, the international politics. And so there, this is the beginning of what I called the strategic oversight of China's rise. Essentially, we decided not to look at that because we, we thought it was convenient. Why it was convenient? Clinton was committed to bring China inside the World Trade Organization. Again, for that, you know, because we needed to, to globalize the, the, the liberal order. And so, just to make a long story short, that's how we, um, all of a sudden, let's say, in, at some point halfway through the, the, the past decade, the 2010s, we realized that actually China had uh, not only modernized, we knew that, but that it also had a very uh, powerful military. And according to military analysts, China nowadays is capable of uh, winning a short-term short conflict within the first island chain. Um, so to answer your question, how strong is China? Well, in a way, it's very strong because that first island chain, unfortunately or fortunately, lies on a very highly strategic uh, region or you know, corner of the world, uh, the South China Sea, which is crucial to, to global trade. So in that sense, China is very strong, has, has been weaponizing uh, those atolls, those islands, the Spratly Islands. And so 
I think what analysts, we don't know that for sure, but analysts believe that China has already a military, military advantage there. However, on the other hand, China is still, from a military point of view, still weak in the sense that beyond that, that you know, confined um, geopolitical uh, region, uh, China doesn't have uh, the, what, what, my, what military uh, analysts would call power projection, uh, forward base. China, to make an example, will struggle to, to, to deal with, you know, a... A, even a small conflict in the Indian Ocean with another, I don't know, with, with, with India, with the US, with NATO. Um, and, but that's not a problem for China. They're not going to war, uh, you know, far from home. And I think uh, this speaks very much about China's uh, weaknesses and strength. China, in my view, will never take... Um, um, you know, any, any rational or, or rushed military uh, decision, action, uh, like going to war uh, far from its, uh, from, from, from its borders, because they know they're not there yet. They have only two carriers. Um, these are not good quality compared to what they will build or compared to what the West have. Um, but at the same, so this is a strength. This is Sun Tzu kind of thinking. Uh, win without fight. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it ha this hides also a weakness. And the, and the weakness is that China is not ready to go to war with, uh, with the West. Yeah, that's, that's some uh, good analysis. I agree. And uh, in terms of technology, switching gears a bit, and, and the new Cold War, we have you know, a lot of issues. We have the industrial policies uh, highlighted in attempts to to ban Huawei and, and such. And there's the threat of, you know, espionage, spying, surveillance. And for me, something that is important is the digital uh, authoritarianism, which we see in China with its kind of dystopian social credit system. And I feel, you know, this is spreading now in the West, censorship, deplatforming. And, you know, what is important for you when thinking about Big tech, Silicon Valley technology in the U.S.-China Cold War. Thank you. So, first of all, you said this is spreading in the West, right? Uh, and um, I think I, I don't know exactly what you meant by this, but what 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 this tells me really is that um, China. We saw that we realized that China is this somehow successful model of government controlling the levers of powers. And now we see in the West, in the US, in the UK, a debate about approaching these issues, uh, especially strategic technologies, with a whole of government or cross-government, pan-government uh, approach. So it means that as many people, uh, for example, uh, have recently seen that on foreign affairs, on the foreign affairs journal, uh, we have realized that the Chinese model somehow, although we don't like it, it is successful, uh, especially when it comes to these issues. And somehow within democratic boundaries, we're trying to Im imitate that. But, it, you know, it's a dangerous territory. And I don't know to, to what extent we can remain democratic when it comes to certain technology, when it comes to surveillance uh, and so on. But that's something that really uh, I find fascinating, the fact that this is a very important strategic victory for China. The fact that we are becoming, we are managing um, economic issues in a more centralized, politically centralized way. So we are looking at them. We somehow, we don't say that, but we admire them somehow. Let's put it that way. Um, well, while the Silicon Valley is, is central to UK-China relations, is because the Silicon Valley represents, uh, you know, the, the, the present and above all the future of, you know, next generation's uh, technologies. And I've read many statements from Obama, from Trump, from, you know, U.S. policy circles. There is this belief, but this is the same in China. That's, that's pretty much the same. There is this belief that if you want to be the economic and military hegemon, uh, well, if you want to be, you know, the world leader, uh, you need to master those kind of strategic uh, technologies. Uh, first of all, because we're talking about a, 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 an economic sector that gives you a lot of money, 
and also because it's an economic sector that also gives you power. So if you have a bank, you only have a lot of money. But if you own Google, you have money, but also uh, control, right? So, uh, and, and I mean, you know, the Silicon Valley is also, you know, the, the, it's, it's where, you know, the, the future of also future weapons will develop and artificial intelligence and so on. So it, this, is really this is really central. And the Silicon Valley and, you know, technological success ties in into uh, international rule of law and free market, which we discussed at the start of this conversation. Uh, the Silicon Valley is still very much more competitive than uh, than Chinese companies in this sector, apart from Huawei and, and, and Zoom now is coming up. Um, and so the U.S. wants to maintain those free market uh, rules um, that that you know that have been in place since the end of World War II, because it those rules continue to protect and to guarantee the success of this. Uh, U.S. Uh, these American corporate, you know, giants, um, and you also see many times statements from both Obama and Trump saying we need to protect, especially from Obama, we need to protect those rules that have made us great. We cannot let China uh, impose those rules on certain different rules on us, and of course, China has all the interest to um, undermine those. Uh, free market uh, rules because China conducts business in a different way. It's more state-led, uh, and so th that's this is really uh, the core of of the rivalry between the U.S. and China. This is why Obama, first with the TPP, uh, and then Trump with the trade war, tried to take on China. The TPP and the tariffs are two very different tools in foreign economic policy. The TPP is multilateral. The tariff, the, 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 the trade war was bilateral, confrontational. But they were both trying to compel China, to force China to privatize a bit, a little bit more its uh, economy, which is in some strategic areas still very much controlled by the state. You mentioned uh, Google. So if you're Google uh, as well, you own a bank. I think two weeks ago was reported that oh, yeah. Google is now trying to create its own financial or, or banking uh, ecosystem. So, so that's, that's, you know, that's getting dangerous, that concentration of power. Before I, I continue with some of my questions, maybe to ask you, uh, what are some other important or pressing points uh, for you uh, when thinking about this new Cold War, US-China geopolitics or international relations today? Yeah, I think perhaps this might be of interest uh, to, to, to your audience, to our audience today. Um, this, this new Cold War uh, tends to be framed as um, a, a clash between democracies, uh, a democracy and an authoritarian country. I think we, we are from a Western perspective, uh, this is, you know, we're, we're making a big mistake because we continue to look at international affairs through the lenses of that divide. Uh, there's democracy, and then there are authoritarian regimes, and, and that's it. And it's a very black and white way of looking at uh, these things. Um, I think it prevents us from understanding what is China. The main issues with China is not that it's an authoritarian country. The main issue is that China, with China is that it's a nationalist country. Not that it's a communist country, but that it's a nationalist country. Um, and also, we continue to offer this, I think, misplaced uh, analysis. I think there's a misunderstanding. It's not really about values. It's more about economic and technological competition. Obviously, this is related to values because when we talk about value, then this ties in into international rules, international regimes, and you know, multilateralism. So, it's, so values are an instrument here for the West. They have been an instrument for the West, for, for the US, to, to compete with China. Uh, but I think we need to be a little bit more, more realistic. We should go back to, uh, to Kissinger. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's a very important point that needed to clarify. Perhaps I just, I just want to add that um, there are interesting similarities with the Cold War. 
and interesting differences. Uh, what are the what are the differences? Well, we are not in a bipolar international order uh, yet. Why we're not in, in a bipolar order? Because the U.S. and China, although they try to influence other countries, they don't 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 have the same command, the same influence that the U.S. and the Soviet Union used to have. And also, this is not this is different from the old Cold War because there's very much. Uh, economic interdependence between the two rivals. But why I think it's very similar is, is because, uh, you know, the, the implications of the rela this relationship are global. They, you know, they, they have implications for, that they touch on every industry, they touch on every region of the world, um, you know, COVID, uh, there's, there's so much going on between them. It's, it's really difficult to conduct foreign policies these days, let's say if you are Italy, France, Mexico, Australia, very difficult to conduct foreign policy uh, uh, while not feeling squeezed by what's going on between the US and, the US and China. So uh, this is always a factor in, 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 every, in every important decision. So in that sense, I think we can say it's a new type of Cold War. And uh, maybe uh, to take a look at, at the Middle East, you wrote a piece uh, a year ago uh, on the Gulf, uh, where saying it might, it might be become it's becoming a proxy in the U.S.-China new Cold War. We've seen Israel uh, and China, especially, getting cozy with China's entry into the port at Hafta, which is angering Washington. We've seen uh, Saudi Arabia begin to kind of look away from the US and look towards China's strategic partner Russia for you know military and security aspects what are your thoughts um on the Middle East uh, and China sure so uh, and this gives me a chance to link back to some of the things we said so first of all i think the gulf in general is going through a transition um this is and this very much relates to the global transition so the Gulf countries, they have realized that the balance of power is changing, and especially that the U.S. is less committed to the region because, uh, well, it doesn't have a direct national security interest. Not that it doesn't have an interest, but it's not direct in the region. Right now, the priority is China is the Indo-Pacific. They've said it in, in all possible ways. And the Gulf monarchies, they've realized that. And so they've started to become more cozy with Russia and, and China. And so also in the region, we see the kind of uh, multipolarity somehow uh, taking shape. Um, and then that's one factor. The other factor is the, the new Cold War between the US and China. There is a lot of pressures from both parties uh, in, uh, on Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Israel, um, actually, I've learned about that by talking when talking to European Union diplomats uh, who operate in the region. They told me, uh, you know, it's becoming um, uh, quite frustrating, quite difficult to conduct our job because we always need to think in terms of okay, what what is the US or what is China going to think? And so that's 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 part of of the politics in the region. Israel. The case of Israel is not different from uh, the case of Italy, the case of the UK, the case of South Korea. These days you tend to find, um, so the, the, the security establishment in every Western country, uh, which tends to be more pro-US and so more concerned about China, but then you find very influential business interests, business community which, uh, well, they lobby very hard in order to uh, do business with China. And also, this has to be said, we live in a time of austerity, especially in Europe. Uh, and so uh, the Chinese come in with money. It's very difficult to say, no, thank you. I, I don't want to use your money to, to, write, to, 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 to build this, this railway or whatever. Um, and so this is part of this creates a lot of tensions also domestically and not only between the US and its partners. I, I wanted to get your thoughts uh, uh, on the media information war aspect. You know, just over the last 
year or two or, or three, perhaps it's been fascinating for me kind of as an observer to watch the evolution of Chinese media, Chinese diplomats, officials and, and Chinese pundits uh, on social media. They have they seem to have really upped their game and polished their Twitter and, and other social media accounts and, and news agencies um, uh, including outlets such as Global Times, uh, they're speaking very confidently and very uh, aggressively, re returning, you know, in the media to the West, kind of an eye for an eye. What are your thoughts kind of uh, on the media war between the U.S., China, and someone like yourself who who uh, observes and reads um, the, the, the from both sides the, the consuming the information? Uh, right, so the different thoughts. Well, on, on the media world, uh, world this tells that um, really uh, that's why we talk about a new type of Cold War in the sense that this is everywhere. And another aspect that is very similar to, to the old Cold War is the fact that uh, there is this uh, commitment to delegitimize the adversary in everything that the adversary does. I can see this on both sides. So I think this was one of the first things that made me think, this really sounds like uh, a new Cold War. Um, so that's, uh, th th that's important, that's part of the picture. I think one is not helpful at all when it comes to diplomacy. It's striking that the US and China, despite how important this relationship has become, despite all the tension, don't, uh, don't really have a, a deal, like a diplomatic deal, a, a, a diplomatic pact. And I think it's really very much time to, to do that. Uh, on perhaps on information, misinformation, I think China is ahead of the game. Uh, but this, this has very much to do with how, again, we go back to this Sun Tzu philosophy. So Sun Tzu was, was all about, uh, you know, he wrote about the, uh, sorry, uh, uh, the, the, the art of war and, uh, um, yeah, win without fight. That's that's the mantra for for Chinese policymakers, and so that's why the cognitive environment, the cognitive domain nowadays that we talk a lot about uh, multi-domain. Uh, right, right now the military in, military institutions in the West are studying this idea of multi-domain. Um, so the cognitive element, the cognitive environment, uh, has become you know very central. China is probably 20 years ahead of, ahead of us. I say 20 years because in 1999, um, Chinese, two Chinese colonels from the Air Force uh, wrote um, a, a book, a pamphlet titled Unrestricted Warfare. So that's how they see competition. It, it goes way beyond um, you know, a military clash, which instead is what a, the, in the West, which is more, which is closer to the, the, the tradition of Clausewitz, uh, we, we, you know, we, we see as more, more, more relevant. So we always look for that smashing uh, ultimate victory. This is not what China is looking for. China is looking for, is trying to make small gains um, here and there. And uh, by mastering the, the cognitive domain, they, you know, they're, they're playing the game, they're doing it very well. We saw that, a bit of that in, um, uh, during the pandemic crisis in Italy. Um, as China was delivering masks and medical equipment and, and, and doctors were coming to Italy, they were very good at uh, chore choreographing, uh, showcasing over Twitter, Facebook, with different, even institutional accounts, uh, uh, how good they were. And um, uh, you know, it's all relative, of course. You might say, you know, this is all normal. They're providing helps and, you know, fine. Uh, but, you know, this triggered um, um, an alarm within the Italian parliament. And uh, we have a, a committee on uh, working on, uh, on intelligence. And they uh, wrote a report entitled, uh, it, well, the, the title was referring to infodemic during the COVID pandemic. So... Um, yes, I mean, this is very much, uh, I think this is one of the tools that China uses to increase its uh, influence. It was basically playing uh, the long game, sort of like death by a thousand cuts. Um, 
Taiwan. So we're seeing a great increase in news coverage, especially aggressive commentary from both the Chinese side and the West uh, on Taiwan, from both Chinese government officials, Chinese media, such as Global Times, and the same from the West. It seems almost as though something is about to break on Taiwan, that we may see some action. You've said that as China's military military power has grown over the last two decades at a really fast pace, uh, the United States has lost command of the commons in a highly strategic region such as the Western Pacific. Uh, you recently wrote a piece on Taiwan's, quote, porcupine doctrine, which involves a set of escalating options that acknowledge China's proximity to the Taiwanese coast. The idea, according to the Defense Review, is to resist the enemy on the opposite shore, attack it at sea, destroy it in the littoral area, and annihilate it on the beachhead, end quote. You also recently tweeted Gideon Rachman's piece in the Financial Times, which correctly says that the moment of truth over Taiwan is getting closer. Your thoughts on, on Taiwan and scenarios uh, regarding it and whether, you know, we might uh, be getting close to the moment of truth. Thank you. Um, also, thank you for, you know, monitoring all my activities. That's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm very happy. Thank you. <laughs> I'm very grateful. Um, yes, I think, I mean, I, I, I just don't, given what we've been saying, so far about how China operates. And given that China, uh, behind its strengths, in the way it engages with the West, actually it hides uh, quite a few weaknesses. One that we mentioned, military weaknesses. Uh, I don't see China as willing to, to make that step if, if it's not brought to take that step. And then I'll explain about that. Um, first of all, when we talk about Taiwan, um, as I tried to explain on that blog, is not an easy business. It's, it's actually very difficult. Um, you know, I, I sit, you know, every day in conversation with my military students, and we always repeat that you can bomb the hell out of a country, but until you bring troops on the ground, until you control what's going on there, until you get to know the country, until you, you know, get take the chance to gain some consensus among the population in whatever way. Um, you know, you, you cannot control uh, a, a chunk of land, you cannot control another country. And uh, Taiwan, uh, Taiwan knows that. And so when in, in the first decade of, of this century, they, they were realizing that China was growing from a military point of view too fast, that it was pointless for Taiwan to, to try to to fight and win China. And so they shifted to this porcupine doc doctrine, which essentially is guerrilla warfare, the weapon on the, of the weak. It relies on you know, a early warning networks, as you said, guerrilla at sea. And then above all, on the fact that Taiwan has a very mobilizable uh, or mobilized society with a lot of reserves, a, a very uh, urbanized uh, uh, you know, context, difficult geography. So, um, the ultimate defense for Taiwan is making uh, the life of the Chinese military impossible when it comes to stepping on the island and also imposing human and political costs so that China, you know, in, in order to undermine political uh, and moral resolve and consensus, consensus in mainland China, which is actually something that the Chinese Communist Party is very uh, concerned with. So that's what it is about. And so I, I just don't see that happening. However, I'm, I'm a little concerned that all these trips, all these um, passages through the Strait, British warships, French warships, um, the US uh, aircraft carrier near between Taiwan and Japan over the last few days, I'm concerned that this is going to make China uh, nervous. And I think, and that's a, let's say, a provocative question I want to share with everyone. We really need to think about why are we talking so much about, about Taiwan these days? Why are we concerned about Taiwan? What is at stake for us? And do we need to uh, protect uh, Taiwan? Um, you know, I, I guess depending on where you live in the world, you know, there will be different answers. But, you know, and it's very important for me, it's very important that the Taiwanese decide for their future. But I'm just saying, 
we, you know, we need to think twice before we get involved in something that perhaps might uh, escalate. And, and, and to what extent that is our fight? Yeah, I have basically one more question for you, and it's related to that region. We have this new security pact between Australia, UK, US, you mentioned it, AUKUS. Uh, for me, this seems to be preparation for war with China, perhaps not imminently, but at some future point, uh, using Australia as a jumping off point, which would also designate Australia as a target for China. And they're talking about nuclear submarines, nuclear weapons. Uh, your thoughts on AUKUS? Yes, so um, I'd like to uh, say that when AUKUS came out, I was at an Indo-Pacific symposium in, uh, in Oxford University. There were people from government, colleagues, experts in the region, um, especially the Indo-Pacific experts. They were very excited about it. I had the feeling that um, it was a bit of a, you know, they were thinking, you know, wow, this is a game changer. Uh, you know, this is an important development. Um, Personally, I was a, a little less exci excited, let's put it that way, for different re reasons. First of all, uh, the US and the UK already have uh, military strategic pacts with, with Australia. And I mean, we know that the UK and the US are always going to try to rescue somehow Australia if it was in trouble. Um, I felt there was a bit of showmanship. Uh, for example, Boris Johnson, here in London, made it all about jobs, jobs for the British people. Uh, perhaps he was also afraid to mention China. Uh, there is also that. Um, Biden, I guess, he wanted to demonstrate resolve uh, and the fact and showing that the US is close to allies in the region. Certainly, for Australia, there is a strategic concern uh, these days. Australia has a lot of problems because China is uh, restricting imports from Australia, so there are concerns within the business community. So for Australia, it's a bit different. There is a lot going on, and so they want to be ready for whatever comes next. Um, but another reason why, for which I was a bit skeptic, it's the fact that these submarines will be delivered in 2034. Uh, and I think I understand that this is only uh, the first one will come in 2034, uh, others will come afterwards. So I see, I just see a, a contradiction, a, a yeah, disconnect between the urgency of the China problem, which is a problem from a very, very natural point of view. It is a big issue, the rise of China uh, in many ways, uh, and the slow pace of delivery of, of these submarines. Although, of course, procure, military procurement, I've learned, is um, uh, a very long-term long business. So... Uh, perhaps this is just as it uh, as soon as it could be, uh, but yeah, I mean we'll 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 have to see how how this de develops. So far, it's uh, it's still early stage, and the contract is not in place yet. This was there was only a diplomatic agreement, so we'll see. But it was very interesting instead for me uh, the 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 crisis with the French government. I suspect. Well, to me, AUKUS, first of all, is a symptom of the fact that uh, there are a lot of problems within NATO. Uh, and especially, we increasingly see, we see it more and more on, on the news. We see debates about whether the future of Atlantic security will have to be transatlantic, so NATO, or will have to be with a US-led framework and with a EU military framework, on the other hand. So we know France and Germany are talking about, are dreaming, are wondering about a EU military union. The US opposes that. Historically, the US has always opposed that. Uh, to me, AUKUS is a symptom of, of that, that, you know, there, there is a, increasingly there is a divide. Please just allow me to conclude that that divide within NATO is another symptom of something bigger, which is uh, the fact that perhaps we are uh, slowly walking into a post-Western world. And the rise of China plays an important role in this post-Western world because China, with its uh, economic financial charm appeal, it's creating a lot of divisions within the, the, the transatlantic or Western coalition. We have seen that at the G7, where Biden tried to convince allies that build back better 
better world should be mostly about China. But other allies in Europe, they were like, uh, okay, take it easy. We need, first of all, to rebuild after COVID. We don't want to make it just about China because they have a less hawkish approach towards Beijing. So there's a really a lot going on. And we started talking, we started from, you asked me questions about the unipolar moment. Well, it looks very different from those days. It looks much more fragmented, the geopolitical panorama. All right. I think you, you wrapped it up very well. You are on Twitter at, I like your Twitter handle, at Multipolar Order. And apart from uh, your new book, um, which was published in the spring, is there any uh, website or project you wish to recommend uh, to us? Uh, right. Uh, I would love to. Well, first of all, I'm writing a short book about China and the West, which is all about um, everything. I, I take the, this excuse of, you know, everything we got wrong about China in the West, also to talk more in general about some, some problems of the West. And one of the most important themes is the fact that we sold, uh, we sold our strategic soul in the name of neoliberalism, in the name of finance, in the name of making profits. We stopped thinking long term. And then we have the rise of China, the climate crisis, the jobless society. So we really need to get better at that. Uh, and so China has a lot of lessons for us. I really, that's why I find it fascinating. Uh, perhaps I'd like to tell you that I, I, I'm part of an association called It's Verona. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, we do a lot of things. Please do, do get in touch, do check out our website. Uh, we have 60 interns. We talk about international security from every point of view. So it's very inclusive. Every perspective is welcome. And I'd love to share with you the, the actual website. I don't know if I can do it later, perhaps. I'll, I'll include, I think I've seen it. I'll include the link in the description. Don't worry about that. I'm, I'm good with that stuff. And so, uh, yeah, all right. Do follow Zeno on his uh, Twitter. Check out his book. He's got a very good geopolitical informed analysis. And actually, King's College, um, these days, I don't follow so much um, the university academic world, but King's College is one of the few... Um, institutions i follow on twitter i i, I like the, the the work that they do analysis that they do and so uh, grazie for being on geopolitics and empire thank you uh muchas gracias uh, i wish i could say thank you in croatia i need to get better at that but... voila I say. thank you <laughs> i hope you enjoyed this geopolitics and empire podcast interview the website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else. Subscribe to all our platforms and Leave a donation, if possible, via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.